Hi re-readers, Hank here. In today's episode, we'll discuss one of Shakespeare's greatest and most well-known plays, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Joining us will be Professor Louis Petrich of St. John's College. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And Nick Odzig of Harvard University. A subject's loyalty to his king, of the relationship between a husband and a wife, a soldier and his sovereign, whatever it would be, that all of these different roles find no consistent boundary. Everything feels blurred or thrown together in conflict, and we can't quite sort things out as nice and neatly as we would like. And I think that's part of the fun of this play and part of what makes it such a, you know, an enduring work. Originally, Professor David Bevington, the prolific Shakespeare editor from the University of Chicago, was going to be the third guest. However, because of his unexpected passing in early August, we'll be dedicating a special episode to Professor Bevington, in which you can listen to his singular and passionate reading of Shakespeare in its full, uncut form. We hope you will listen to his ideas about Shakespeare, which deserve to keep on living for all of us. Professor Louis Petrich worked as an assistant director and actor at the Court Theatre of the University of Chicago in the late 1980s, and at the Folgers Shakespeare Theatre in Washington, D.C. in the early 1990s. In 2002, he came to St. John's College in Annapolis as a tutor. He remains there to this day, teaching the great books across the liberal art curriculum. Hello, Professor Petrich. I'm glad to talk to you today. I'll start the conversation with this question. In your lecture to meet with Macbeth, the word more keep, keeps appearing over and over again. Do you feel that more is somehow at the essence of this play Macbeth and this tragedy? Yes, I do. Not only does it appear in the play over and over again, you know, sleep no more. You know, Macbeth have murdered sleep, therefore Glam shall sleep no more, Macbeth shall sleep no more. I mean, that sort of comes immediately to mind. But I think the word matters because it speaks to what's driving him and the lady. They want more. Not enough to be the great warrior, recognized as brave and noble and putting the king into his debt. He wants more from life. In fact, he wants it all. And he's willing to risk everything to get it. So, yeah, more is what's driving him. There's got to be more, I think, for him and for the lady. And even when the word itself is not used, its sense is present in what they're saying. So when he sends the lady a letter telling her about his meeting with the witches, and then he shows up, or rather before he... I guess, yeah, when he shows up, uh, comes back and greets her, and and she says, you know, thy thy letters have transported me beyond this ignorant present, and I feel now the future in the instant. I mean, that's also wanting more, that transport, that sense of 
you know, the, the whole future, everything they've ever dreamed of is right there for the taking. And all they have to do is, well, take it. His desire for more is kind of the main drive of this tragedy, of his action. Yes, I think so. I mean, they think that it's kingship. You know, if, if he can be king, she queen, that will be it. The words they use to describe it, it's not simply, you know, being king. They think that, that the kingship is a means towards really ultimate satisfaction. As in what I just quoted from her, to be transported, to have, you know, one's heart's desire, something ultimate, an ultimate satisfaction. So that's what I think. That's what I think makes makes him interesting, not you know just a kind of ordinary tyrant, which is what everyone in the play thinks he becomes, but they don't understand who he really is or what he, what's driving him. Do you think this character Macbeth is somewhat relatable? No, he, he's not. I don't think so. I mean, he's. He's a murderer, let's, and most people are not murderers, let's, let's be clear. So the kingship is not the end of it. There's, like, after he acquires kingship, there is always more, and that's the tragedy. So he becomes king by killing Duncan, mm -hmm. but then he has to go on and secure himself. In that sense, it's, it's you know, what one expects of a, of a tyrant. You know, they need to be secure, and therefore they need to keep killing and spying and, you know, rooting out their real or potential enemies. But he wants perfection, as he puts it, you know, that's his word. It's a kind of a state of perfection, of being untouchable, being at rest, of not having to fear, of, you know, getting what he thinks he deserves since he's willing, he sacrificed his soul for this, for this thing, this more, this perfection then, you know, it has to equal at least what he sacrificed. So it's, yeah, it's not just, I think, not just sitting on that throne, but it's a state of being that surpasses, surpasses the ordinary. That, I think, also helps to explain why when we first hear about him at the beginning of the play, what he's doing in battle, in the fighting the rebels and the invaders on behalf of Duncan, He's not an ordinary brave soldier. That would be Banquo, maybe Macduff, but he's, the way he kills is, and the way he moves around quickly in different parts of the battlefield that amazes people. I mean, there's something driving him that is almost more than human. He unseems people from the nave to the chops, that is right down the middle, as if he were trying to see what's, inside the very makeup or constitution of a human being that gives them their, you know, their bilateral symmetry. And by killing, by attacking that which holds the human together and makes, makes a, out of a double, that is to, a two-armed, two-legged, two-eyed being, a single whole. And that's, that's the other word that occurs in the play with great frequency, is the word double. And it goes, obviously, with the word more. So he's, he's attacking that principle of manyness out of which there is the oneness that makes a, a human being. That is the moreness out of which there is this one oneness 
I think he's maybe not even consciously knowing it that he's that he's pursuing. So that that was the thing that I wanted to get at in my lecture, the way I was thinking about Macbeth. So not so much a politically driven tyrant, but the more philosophically and theologically driven tyrant who, on top of all that, speaks, I think, the greatest dramatic poetry Shakespeare has written, at least in the first half of the play. So speaking of the doubleness, this tension between single and double is certainly ubiquitous in the play, like when Macbeth was thinking of the murder of Duncan. He says, my single state of man is being shaken. And when Lady Macbeth was talking to Macbeth, she was questioning that, you know, she was questioning his single state of man, that she's saying he's being a double now, that he wants this, but he does he is not willing to put it into action. And one very interesting thing that you also mentioned in your lecture is the witches are actually neither single nor double. They are three. They are triple. So do you think the fact that they are triple, which is more than single or double, say comments anything on their role or their identity in the play? Well, first let me say one thing that occurred to me when, when you were speaking about the lady. Yeah, she is able to get to Macbeth and you know, persuade him to actually kill Duncan when he says we will proceed no further in this business by, in effect, saying, yeah, I'm not going to lead a double life with you anymore. That is, dreaming things inwardly but not having them outwardly. We've got to put in into line with each other what we want and what we have because that's no it's no way to live it's not manly and i'm just not going to do that anymore that's what i hear her saying and and that gets to him i think he's really has no choice but to give her that or to lose her so yeah there there again there's the single the double trying to become single now the witches are a triple i think it's partly the voices that shakespeare hears them as a threesome which you know, opens the play, I think, magnificent, magnificently, those, those three voices. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? There's the three, thunder, lightning, and rain. You know, when the hurly, and then the next voice, when the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Third voice, that will be ere the set of sun. So I think as he was imagining them, he hears these three voices and... You know, three is also allows for a certain kind of possibilities, I think, on stage and in the imagination. When Macbeth meets them, they've got to disappear. And if there are three, you can position them in such a way that when he's looking at one or two, the third one gets away. And then he's distracted by that missing when he goes back to the previous one or two and they get away. So it's harder to do that if you have just one or two. So I, that's, I think, also a part of it. And it makes them not a part of the, the more double dynamic we were just talking about, that the witches are from another dimension of being a reality in the play that Macbeth is trying to tap into, but it remains alien to him. They're actually called, for the most part in the play, weird sisters, 
rather than witches. Weird meaning wayward, that is, not kind of wandering in error, not taking any known path, creatures that really are hard to pin down. One of my favorite things about your lecture was the way that you, as a trained actor, are really able to bring the language of Shakespeare's poetry to life in your physical readings. Would it be possible for us to read a passage or two together to hear the language and also maybe to look into how this poetry is serving the meaning? Sure. Do you have something in mind? Yes. My personal favorite passage is Macbeth's soliloquy in the end, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Okay. So um, Seaton is just brought in. Well, he hears a cry from within, which is you know, a stunning, dramatic effect, of course. And Macbeth, who previously in the play would jump whenever he heard noises, that's what happens when he you know, returns downstairs from the murder. He hears something and gets startled. And you know, wherefore was that noise? How is it with me when every noise appalls me? But this cry does not affect him. You know, all he says is, what is that noise? And Seaton says, it's the cry of women, my good Lord. And he says, I've almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night at shriek, and my fell of hair would at a dismal treaties rouse and stir as life were in it. I have supped full of horrors. Direness familiar to my slaughterous thoughts cannot once start me. And that's, I think, a kind of triumphant, surprising discovery that he makes about himself. He's been trying to get there the whole play, that state of fearlessness. And then he says, wherefore was that cry? And we hear this, Seton, the queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot of sound and fury signifying nothing. And then a messenger interrupts, stops in midline at the word nothing, which is, I think, poetically interesting to speak to your question, because you expect there to be more. I mean, he should finish the line. It's an iambic pentameter verse, so we've got signifying nothing, just half a line. Enter a messenger, and it stops on the word nothing. Nothing is in place of the more that we do not get. So that's where his desire for more has taken him. I also like very much in this speech the metadramatical challenge that Shakespeare puts to his very self when he has Macbeth say, it's a tale told by an idiot. Well, Shakespeare's telling us the tale, giving us the 
you know, the meaning of life in this particular tale, and his main character is calling the author an idiot. Hearing this soliloquy in real life, really, it just adds a lot to my understanding too, like of this passage, and also, and then is heard no more. <laughs> Like when the audience are expecting more, but then this tale told by an idiot is heard no more. That also speaks to one of the cruxes of the, the play as a whole. It's a plot question, really. I mean, you mentioned um, the audience expects certain things or expects more. By this time, of course, in Shakespeare's career, they had they expected great things from him, always more. Because of what he had previously done, but I said earlier that you know, for at least the first half of the play, he's giving us some of the greatest dramatic poetry that he wrote in his career, and therefore the greatest ever written by anyone. But since he's so determined, Macbeth, I mean, to snuff out his fears in the form of his enemies and in the, in the ghosts, and the scorpions that are in his mind and his imaginings. In the process, he 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 diminishes his capacity for feeling, fearing, speaking, and even though he becomes more and more formidable as a political tyrant, killing his enemies, he becomes um, uh, after after the banquet scene, he becomes diminished as a as a speaker of great poetry and as as a dramatic figure in that regard. So our expectations. That will just keep getting more of him in that way, the way we had in the first half of the play, are frustrated, and that's the price that's paid for wanting the kind of more that he wanted. Until the very end, when he he meets Macduff, and I think goes out with greatness, as evil as he is as a as a tyrant, and I do think he's about as bad as it gets. That is someone. Who, as he himself says, is willing to put himself before everyone and anything. I mean, for my own good, all causes shall give way. He says that's as good a definition as evil that as I've ever heard. And he's willing to kill all of them, every last one of them. And the only one that can prevent that from happening is Macduff, and he knows that, or fears it, because of the prophecies. And yet he's willing to throw away his shield and fight it out against the odds,、uh, in the hope that he can kill him too, and then all of the rest, and live out his life until he dies a natural death. But that last speech is is just that's the Macbeth from the beginning, who's come back for one brief, great going out. Macbeth at the end when he 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 agrees to fight Macduff. And he says, "You know, you know, I will not yield to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet and to be baited with the rabble's curse. Though Burnham would become to Dunsinane, and thou opposed, being of no woman born, yet I will try the last. Before my body, I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damn him that first prize. Hold enough." So there again, we get the more saying, "Damned be he that." Says enough, you know, the opposite of more. So he's going out the way he came in, wanting more. That I think is magnificent. 
It's like Don Giovanni on the Mozart opera, who just refuses to repent, to say enough of this way of life. You're right. I'll be, I'll be a good boy now. You know, Macbeth doesn't also does not uh, does not do that. Macbeth even told the last moment of his life, he's he's still he still refuses to say enough. That he's kind of going against the art, going against the fate that. He's destined to be killed by Macduff. He just refuses. He wants more. I want to conclude this conversation with this last question: What makes Macbeth and Shakespeare in general still important and relevant for people to read today? Well, I think if you ever sort of poke around in the Oxford English Dictionary, which not only defines words but tells you when that word was. First used that way, uh, you'll discover that uh, Shakespeare is really the the inventor of our the chief inventor of our language. For me, you know, he's someone that helped me learn how to speak. Literally, of course, I was reading and speaking before I came to start reading Shakespeare. And I guess the first play I read was in middle school, Romeo and Juliet. But he expands the boundaries of the possibilities of speech. Three orders of magnitude beyond, I think, what you would bring to it just as a native English speaker. That I think is important because if you can't, if you don't have words to say what you're thinking, what you're feeling, that's a very unpleasant condition to be in, and you know it it can be you know, frustrating to the point of violence. But if one knows how to sort of put into words one's feelings, well. I mean, look what happens in Romeo and Juliet, the first play that I ever read of Shakespeare's. I mean, that those characters know how to make love verbally, so powerfully and so beautifully that it makes the mere going to bed together look like you know, disappointing by comparison. And that I think is important for for young people today to be able to, well, just know how to to say words of love to each other. To have those words, rather than to grunt and to groan, and do whatever else they're doing nowadays—texting and twittering—to me, it's really sad to think how much language has degenerated by the, the technology that emphasizes brevity and, and and tries to complete your thoughts and misspells your words, and uh, rather than saying comparison to Shakespeare, which is just the opposite, which expands and elaborates and beautifies and You know, makes you want to actually spend time and patience on doing it ever better. So that that I, I think he's an antidote to to what's going on today. Thank you so much for your time and your wonderful responses. I just really love the part that you could read some of the passages on this show, and I think our listeners will definitely love it. I look forward to it. Thank you for.、Uh, Contacting me about this—it was an honor. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Nicholas Odzik is a PhD student in the Department of English at Harvard University, where his research focuses on representation of soldiers in early modern drama. Nick is also a former U.S. Army aviation officer whose final assignment was an embedded advisor to an Afghan Special Operation Aviation Unit. Hello, Nick. Good to talk to you today. 
I've done some research online, and、uh, I saw that your research in- interest are the war and militarism in Shakespeare, and you yourself served in the military. And sometimes when we read the play Macbeth, we often overlook, like, or we don't realize the fact that this the story of Macbeth begins with a war. Begins with the first thing we hear about this character Macbeth is that he's slicing his enemy in half from knife to chops. So clearly, this idea of war and militarism and soldier is. Pretty big in the play, but people don't often realize it because, and it's reasonable because they don't have the military experience, or、um, they may not visualize what it's like. And my question is, could you tell us a little more about how you are studying militarism in Shakespeare now, and how you got interested in that aspect? Yeah, cool. So my, I mean, my interest into into war and militarism kind of come in in part from my own. Personal background. I spent some time in the army before I went to graduate school, and as I'm kind of continuing my studies, I like to sort of have one foot back in in my own personal past. I like to think,、um, in some cases, that that my own sort of sense of what it's like to be in war helps me hear or see different things in in the plays. But I think in in the case of Macbeth, you really hit the nail on on the head with. Hey, this is a play that starts, you know, it starts all or almost starts right with the with a war. We hear the first real in-depth scene is this report from the battlefield, and what we when we first hear about Macbeth, we're getting this incredible report of this unbelievably violent action that he's capable of performing, right? So when we before we even meet Macbeth, we're already kind of primed to to expect this this lethal. You know, brutal, physical, violent kind of figure. I mean, he's not just a soldier, right? He's a, he's a particularly successful one, and he's not afraid to get into the middle of a battle and to fight. And so, I like that you you kind of key to it. it, it you, you just hear about it, and it's just just like just for a moment in that second scene of the play. And this play is moving so quickly that it just races right past the battle. Right and moves on towards towards the other towards the proper tragedy. So I think that we get this weird sense in the in the beginning. Weird is another maybe good word too for parts of this play. But that Macbeth is a character who is capable of violence in this wartime context. The question I think becomes how difficult is it for him to perform acts of violence later on? It's certainly very interesting to hear that、uh, you're saying that your personal experience. Also influence how you're reading different aspects of the play, and there are actually a lot of stories in Shakespeare that's about wars and、um, militarism. Like Othello, he was a he was a soldier. Like Hamlet and like Henry the Fifth, and particularly in Macbeth, this is interesting that it's actually a post-war play. Like the main action happens after the war. You could even say that this is almost like a Post-war reintegration of a soldier into society. At least that's how I've I've read it. And have you have you thought about the play in this perspective? And just how important do you think this aspect, this war aspect of Macbeth, is to the character and to the story as a whole? Yeah, I I, I love that. I love the the idea that you're ready to kind of draw that 
that line, you know, this is you know, during war and then after war, sort of sort of bellum and post bellum moment, because I think that for Macbeth, part of the problem becomes in what circumstances can can you kill, and in what circumstances is killing prohibited, and what happens to somebody who comes back from war and finds himself killing he just decides to kill right in in a in a way that is that is outside of the context of of the war so there's a sense i think in this play that macbeth is very comfortable with violence and with acts of extreme violence as long as they sort of fit within this particular parameter a set of parameters defined by war governed by by ethical reasoning by purpose by honor by all by law by all number of other kind of codes things that are all sort of thrown out the window when he leaves the the war when the war is over and yet he decides to to kill again of course his new victim right is not a combatant is not a rebel is not somebody on the battlefield it's a, it's his sovereign who's sleeping and it becomes the contrast is, I, I think, very severe. And I think therein we see a little bit of the the real the real break. What is it like to come from a place where certain rules don't apply when you're in combat and you can kill under these particular circumstances to a world where you cannot, where you cannot commit these sorts of acts that you did on the battlefield? I think that we see Macbeth's certain struggle. He doesn't want, he's a reluctant murderer for much of the play, right? We don't actually see him killing. This is the man, you, you, you said it, right? The very first word we hear of Macbeth is this tale of an incredible, incredibly violent feat on the battlefield. Well, we don't actually see him kill anybody on stage until near the very end of the play. I mean, so if you could imagine a sort of 17th century theater scene, people were used to seeing violence on stage all the time. And in the play, we'll see people murdered on stage, right? We'll watch Banquo being murdered on stage or Lady Macduff being, you know, and, and her children. But we, but we don't see Macbeth kill anybody until the very end. We hear about it. We know he's capable of it. But the murder of Duncan happens off stage. Right? We don't, so there's this weird kind of tension. We get what, what the play gives us is a lot of Macbeth's reluctance and a lot of his concern about killing and his worry about whether or not this is something that he's he can or should do. I'm often fascinated by the fact that Macbeth is, you know, he's totally comfortable killing the rebel on the battlefield. But when he thinks about murdering King Duncan back at home, he's like frightened. He's not willing to do so. It leads me to think about this, and you mentioned it too, that there's this war circumstances and this society circumstances that's different. And also maybe in war, he's sort of in this warrior mentality, but back at home, he's supposed to switch it to another mentality. And also there's this moral justification of killing that, you know, he's killing a rebel, he's not killing an innocent person. And what I found very interesting is this justification that he's killing this rebel to protect the peace at home. And he, when he comes home, he sees Lady Macbeth as almost like a man, like he's 
she's telling him to kill King Duncan. So he, she's, so then he he realized that there is no peace at home. So there's almost this destruction of purpose of killing, and I found that just I don't know very scary to think about when you if you were him that all those killing he has done then just become meaningless. So just based on your personal observation and academic research. Do you think this like a mixing of war into the domestic realm is one of like the major element of Macbeth? I love it. So I so I, I won't say that I've encountered this particular circumstance in my personal experience, but what I really love is this word you've been bringing up a couple times of mixing, because I think that seems to be one of the major concerns of this play. Because you talked about kind of that moment where Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are finally. Uh, together on stage, and she's really sort of asserting her own, if we want to call it a kind of masculinity, or certainly attacking his. There's a concern about gender roles and who's sort of fulfilling or, or or failing to fulfill a particular kind of gender role, who's overstepping, right? But it's it's this it's the sense of, of of crossing boundaries, of ambiguity, of a blurring, of a mixing, to to use your term. And I think yeah. That seems very right to me to be a a major concern of this play. Now, is it the war that's coming in? Maybe not the war, but maybe where do where do our loyalties lie? How you know when can we commit acts of violence and when can we not? How you know what do we do when we find these kinds of systems in conflict? Macbeth clearly knows that what he is doing is wrong when he is murdering Duncan. And it's really difficult for him to kind of get over the edge. And I think that's the play. And I, and I think perhaps part, part of you know the, the reason we staged them or the murder staged, you know, or appears off stage, or doesn't appear, I guess it, it takes place off stage, highlights this fact that we're supposed to see that in Macbeth, uh, this very kind of determined soldier can be really circumspect, can know that he's about to do something that's very wrong. But I think your theme of mixing this idea of, you know, well, hey, where are these boundaries and where are these lines? And is that within a, a subject's loyalty to his king, the relationship between a husband and a wife, the, a soldier and his sovereign, whatever it would be, like all of these different roles find no consistent boundary. Everything feels blurred or thrown together in conflict. We can't quite sort things out as nice and neatly as we would like. And I think that's part of the fun of this play and part of what makes it such a, you know, an enduring work. What you were just saying just reminds me of the chanting of the witches, like foul is fair, fair is foul. Like there's no clear bound like between <laughs> what's foul and what's fair. And yeah, I think this mixing or this like the blurring of boundary really is one of the main concern of the play, and it's like very important to the understanding. Yeah, it comes up. It comes up a lot in this concern about equivocation, which was a really popular concern at the at the time that the play. We think the play was written about 1606, and it would have been a a topical concern in that particular historical moment. The equivocation is a sort of fear that that people could find ways to lie under oath. And there were a number of concerns that this practice was attributed to a number of, of Jesuits who'd come over 
clandestinely into England to support Catholics there. And the fear among the state authorities was that they, they were they were plotting rebellion and murder. And of course, the great gunpowder plot of 1605 is, is, is weighing on all of this. But this is that, well, anyway, I'll spare you the long history lesson, but a lot of the plays concerned with equivocation seems to center around what do we do when we can't tell what's true and if somebody is telling the truth. I think that kind of feels like it resonates weirdly today. I mean, although I, I, I'm certain Shakespeare would never have imagined our particular moment, but that sense of instability, right? That mixing. It's the fairest foul, foul is fair, whatever that, that becomes so much a part of this play. Yeah, I totally agree that by reading and watching Macbeth, it definitely prompts readers and audience to just think about this idea of ambiguity and, you know, boundary. And yeah, I think it really can help readers and audience to appreciate a certain ideas. And in a play, we talk about Macbeth as he's kind of like a failure, almost a failure in the reintegration into society that, you know, he's kind of stuck in war, like he just keeps killing, he can't stop. But if we look at Banquo, I mean, he seems like a good example of like a successful reintegration back into this society, except, you know, something he can't control. He was murdered by Macbeth. So what quality of Banquo do you think that helps him? You know, he's been through everything Macbeth has been through. He's been through the war, he's talked to the witches, but like just what quality of him do you think that helped him switch from this like warrior mentality in war to the civil civilized mentality in society? Now, this is a great this is a great question. And I I wonder too how much we should consider what other sorts of pressures we have on Macbeth, right? There there's no Lady Banquo, right, kind of working to push him in a particular kind of direction. And I think that we shouldn't be too hasty to say that Macbeth came back from war and just couldn't stop killing. Because again, I think the play really highlights that Macbeth knows what he's doing is wrong. It's why, why, what, what gets him over the edge? And I think the answer there might be found in, in, in Lady Macbeth and the way that she challenges him to do different things, to, 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 to behave in a way that is contrary to what he, his own sort of value to his own value system. Banquo, though, is a fascinating, is, is a fascinating kind of uh, a counterpoint. If you look at Shakespeare's sources, it's sometimes fun to look and, and see where Shakespeare departed from his historical sources or his historiographic sources, where, where he changes the sequence of events. So, so in, the, in the chronicle history, in Hollington's Chronicle, which is one of Shakespeare's primary sources for the, the, the plot of Macbeth, Banquo is actually a co-conspirator and, and helps Macbeth murder Duncan. He's very much in on it in history, in what Shakespeare considered to be the historical truth behind it, right? Now, King James, who at the time Macbeth was written would have been Shakespeare's, you know, the patron of Shakespeare's acting company, claimed to be descendant from Banquo. And so Shakespeare changes this play. He changes the... the sort of the historical or what he believed may be the historical truth behind it in a manner that that makes 
his king, Shakespeare's king's ancestor, look good. This Banquo is completely innocent. He's a good soldier. He comes home and he does not have any interest in killing King Duncan. He is, as you kind of suggested when you asked your question, a model sort of soldier in peacetime. He comes back. He's just, just chill, right? It, it's it's Macbeth though that can't that. Well, I mean, obviously the murders the murders Duncan. So there's something fun about that that shift, right, between the historical record or what you know Shakespeare is working with as his history, and and what we see in the play. And that, that difference, I think, shapes the question that you're asking, like, is this then creating a condition where we're looking at two men who returned from war, one who's had trouble reintegrating and one who has not? And I think that if we look at Macbeth, it's the other circumstances that surround him, what he hears of the witches, what his conversations with Lady Macbeth that really push him over the edge more than any unseeming that he might have done in battle. Yes. Speaking of the witches, you mentioned them before too. So, just what do you think is their role or purpose in the play? Oh, I love that. I think this is great. Um, this, is, this is a really important question. I, I'm glad we, we we had a chance to kind of kind of get to it. You mentioned right when we started talking about how you know we first hear of Macbeth, you know, really early on this sort of report from the battlefield. But that's not even the first scene of the play, right? We get the witches right from the very beginning. The weird sisters are the first ones, uh, the, the first figures that we see in this play. And it sort of shapes our entire reception of everything. And I mean, are we to think that they're aware they're of a sequence of events that are already sort of predetermined and to which Macbeth is just conforming? Or are they just simply telling Macbeth what he already kind of wants to hear and, and, and helping him hear a desire in himself that he already knows? And what I love about this play is that I don't think it gives us a sort of clear, you know, either or. And I, I think it's more of a both and. I think that the part of the fun of this play is that we don't really get a good resolution about what the weird sisters mean, what their limits might be, how the other characters may or may not, you know, feel obligated to uphold their prophecy, their sayings, what have you, like there's a sort of, they're filled with indirection, right? And I, I like the idea. I think that they represent the opportunity to sort of have it both ways. Like we don't really know. Maybe it could be a world that is in some sense predetermined by supernatural forces or shaped by supernatural forces. And maybe it's not, maybe they're simple. They are there is just a kind of echo of a kind of a primal desire lurking deep within Macbeth, this sort of violent ambition that was really always there and he just needed to hear it out loud. I want to kind of leave a little bit of wiggle room on the question of the Weird Sisters because I think that that helps make this play so much fun because we can't, we, we have to kind of proceed through the play, especially from that really short first scene. We have to proceed through this play with that, that question unresolved and not, not quite knowing whether or not, even in the subsequent encounters with the Weird Sisters, not really ever knowing if they're pulling the strings or if there's something else going on. And I think learning to live with that, with the limits of our knowledge and with that kind of discomfort is part of the fun of the play. Because generally, you know, you think you're, as an audience member, like you know what's going on, like you get to see things, you hear these sides, you see what other characters don't get to see. 
but not so much with the weird, like we're still left in the dark. And I like that. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable with the play. And I want to, I want to sort of like mark off some space and some room for that discomfort and to realize that maybe we won't always have everything perfectly figured out even by the end of the play. And I think they point to the mixing fundamentally, like you brought, you quoted that, you know, the great line really early on in our, in our conversation. And I think that they're sort of emblematic of that, right? The fair is foul and foul is fair. Yeah, they're, they're almost like the embodiment of ambiguity. Like they're even, even their purpose in the play is kind of ambiguous. Like it's very hard to figure out. And as you say, this discomfort that comes from it is really what makes the play kind of what gives it its charm. Yeah, I love it. I, I mean, even Macbeth, when, he, when, when Macbeth first encounters the Weird Sisters, you know, he, he asks just point blank, what are you? <laughs> I mean, so you could, so here you are. I mean, this is, this is, this is the audio. I mean, we're asking that same question too. We're, you and I right now, you know, 400 years later are still having this, are asking Macbeth's question. What, what are you? Right. And what is your, what is your purpose in this play? What do you think of the witches in the play? I think they're a great storytelling tool. I think they're like a force, they're really kind of like a force of nature, they're the voices of fate, I, I kind of think. Right. And if you just, if you step too far, if you take two giant steps instead of one, which is what you're supposed to do, uh -huh. then like, they'll come and find you. And right. it's nothing personal, but like, yeah. they'll take you out. And Macbeth doesn't get a, a, an answer. I love that. But there's the question is left hanging there. And it's the question that I think that, that makes it, makes them so much fun. What makes Macbeth and Shakespeare in general still important and relevant for people to read today? Cool. I love this question. This is, this is a fantastic question. I think that there are a couple of different ways to approach what makes you know, Shakespeare sort of worth devoting some time today. And I, I think one of the first things for me is that Shakespeare in general, Macbeth in particular, rewards a kind of deep attention, what one, one of my old advisors used to call the faculty of deep attention, of, of, of taking your time and really focusing on something. I mean, if you think about, we live in a world where life comes at us in 140 characters or images or memes and that we're meant to sort of consume information in a flash and a swipe or whatever. And, and you can't really work with Shakespeare like that. Like Shakespeare, is you know it's like a cheesecake it takes some time you need to work in you know work into it slowly and that can feel a little difficult it can feel a little bit like a change in a in a world that wants us to sort of to go 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 and but i think that shakespeare encourages us to slow down and to and and to to think and to to develop a comfort as we've been talking about you know this afternoon a comfort with ambiguity to allow ourselves to be challenged and rewarded by a kind of writing that is not common today, right? This isn't, you're not gonna, you know, flip out your phone and, you know, read a Twitter feed that looks like Macbeth. And I think that's okay. I think that, that it puts, it can put us on or make us uneasy at times. And I think we should embrace that and embrace its nuance, its complication, to revel in its confusion, its contradiction, and to love its imagery and its depth. 
and to realize that it's one of those things that will reward reading and rereading. Thank you so much for your、uh, time and all your thoughtful responses. All right. Well, take care, Hank. Yeah. Have a great day.